0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Cable. Today, we'll be talking to historian Matthew Pruer about his 2021 book, Time of Anarchy, Indigenous Power and the Crisis of Colonialism in Early America, published by Harvard University Press. It's described as a gripping account of the violence and turmoil that engulfed England's fledgling colonies and the crucial role played by Native Americans in determining the future of North America a book that recasts our understanding of the late 17th century and places indigenous power at the heart of the story. It certainly changed the way I think about such important historical events as Bacon's Rebellion. Matthew Kruber is assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, where he teaches early American history. Matthew Kruber, welcome to New Books and Native American Studies.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Of course. So first, um, we usually start off just by asking about your background as an historian and how you found yourself on the road to this project.
1: Well, I uh, grew up in a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, which was um, just a few miles away from the Salt River Pima Maricopa community. And um, I'm I'm a non-Native scholar. So as a a white settler growing up in close proximity to a Native space, um, I slowly learned over time uh, that there was this way of of not seeing the indigenous peoples and indigenous pasts that was baked into the entire city in terms of its space, its culture, just everything. So for anyone who's familiar with Phoenix at all, um, there's a really uh, odd kind of combination of very, very visible appropriations. Things like um, the city painting giant cocopely petroglyphs on the sides of the freeways uh, on the one hand, and then uh, erasure. For example, uh, uh, in primary and secondary school, um, there was an entire unit, uh, an entire year of of Arizona history that focused on the state um, that never mentioned native peoples uh, at all. And uh, essentially started with the first settlers who showed up in this, the first Anglo settlers actually um, that showed up in, in this particular space that later became Arizona. So, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't realize any of that. Uh, But when I got to to university, um, I I began to understand that there were these whole histories that had been erased so thoroughly that they became invisible, even when they were right in front of my face. And so that's how I I started becoming interested in indigenous histories and and really and also started um, the ongoing process of unlearning those settler colonial standpoints. that are are just so so thoroughly inculcated into um, the education and culture and and childhood of uh, of white settlers like like me. Um, As for this particular project, uh, the the spark came in in my first year of graduate school when I read American Slavery, American Freedom by Edmund Morgan. And um, this this is a classic of early American historiography. And, and even though it's almost 50 years after the publication, it's still an amazing book. It's It, it remains one of my favorite books in, in early American history. Um, and it is really a, a book that explores the paradox, um, as Morgan puts it, that, that, that the founders of the American Republic, especially you know, Virginians like Thomas Jefferson, um, were simultaneously pioneers of revolutionary thinking about liberty and equality, and at the same time, were entrenched in a brutal system of racial slavery. So uh, Morgan has several chapters about Bacon's Rebellion in this book, uh, which is a a 1676 Civil War in Virginia. And it it famously tells a story about um, the the black and white color line and how that came to be such a defining aspect of American society. So the first thing that was striking about those chapters when I read them was that um, the way that Morgan actually writes it, indigenous peoples are central to the narrative of Bacon's Rebellion. central in a way that historians coming after Morgan often really lost sight of. Uh, And the second thing that was really striking was the presence of the Susquehannock indigenous nation. So the way that that their presence is shown in American slavery, American freedom, um, they don't show up in the uh, beginning chapters at all, which is all about the Powhatan affiliated groups. Uh, And then they show up out of nowhere um 200 pages in at the very beginning of bacon's rebellion and the only thing we know about them the only thing we learn about them is that they launch a series of raids against settlers in 1676 that can that creates conditions for bacon's rebellion to erupt and then they completely disappear from the narrative never to be heard from again and um this was a moment uh when i was reading as an early graduate student that just struck me as profoundly odd uh it was um, in, in retrospect, you know, I, I later came upon a, an interview with Ed Morgan, where he remarked that most historical studies don't really begin with any kind of grand idea or profound eureka moment. They usually start with um, a scholar reading something and saying to themselves, hmm, that's weird. And this was my hmm, that's weird kind of moment. It just it just right. didn't make sense uh, uh, in the way that that it uh, that the Susquehannock people factored into this narrative. So. Um, i really just started out you know uh in the very beginning um trying to learn more about the sasquahannics where they came from before that moment where they went afterward um why they were there and and why they undertook the actions that they did um and that turned out to be the beginning of a much much bigger and more interesting story than i expected and it ultimately became this book
0: okay well so before we dive in and, and since we do have the time um You have a section on terminology at the start of the book that um, I found pretty interesting, and you you refrain from using terms like white and black with an uppercase B for really specific reasons rooted in the very history that you're telling. So can you talk just a bit about that decision?
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, This is the um, this is the challenge of writing about race in the early modern period that I think all all historians um, have to meet, uh, because because forms of human difference that were physically encoded uh, always mattered. Um, there was never really a time in the history of, at least after you know, the sort of period of early modern um, colonialism, you know, there was never a time when that didn't matter. Um, but it mattered in ways that are different from the way that race gets configured, you know, in the 18th century with enlightenment thought in the 19th century with scientific racism in the 20th century with eugenics and so on and so forth. Um, physical difference was just interpreted and and categorized and ascribed meanings that were uh, very different from um, the way that they do in the modern period. So in Virginia, you know, um, Virginia included, uh, uh, there were enslaved Africans in Virginia from almost the very beginning, right, Um, by 1619, if not earlier. but the status of enslaved Africans was actually quite fluid. Um, some scholars have, have sort of explored the fact that most of the um, arrivants in 1619 were um, described as servants rather than slaves. <clears throat> and um, servitude was a condition that, you know, for several decades after that, was not necessarily hereditary or inescapable, right? There were definitely um, African, uh, people of African descent that became free, that established themselves as planters, right? Um, so it became it was a long process for uh, African descent or black skin to become synonymous with slavery and the kind of racial subordination um, that you know uh, that we see by the 18th century and 19th century as being codified.. Um, so in the 17th century, you know, blackness is a European discourse rather than an identity that peoples of African descent would really identify with in a strong kind of way, right? Um, most black people in Virginia were um, first or, or second generation arrivants. They were coming from West Africa, um, from a variety of different um, ethnic and and um, and political groups that didn't necessarily see themselves having any common cause, didn't have a common language. Um, you know, didn't have any, any particular basis for, for seeing themselves as being sort of like a, a, um, having, a, having a common identity, right? And, and, and that's even complicated by the fact that a lot of them were uh, the kind of peoples that um, Ira Berlin described as uh, Atlantic Creoles, right? They had histories of, of forced migration into Spanish or Portuguese imperial zones. They were coming through the Caribbean where they had, you know, even more complicated cultural um, constructions before they made it to North America. Um, there was a whole different variety of of peoples, and and they were scattered uh, for the most part throughout Virginian society in relatively small groups on different plantations, right? We're not talking about the kind of black majority spaces where African American culture um really flowered in places like South Carolina or Georgia later on. Um there was a, a powerful kind of process of um, what some scholars have even described as anglicization for um, for peoples of African descent in kind of later seventeenth century and eighteenth century Virginia. Um, and And by the same token, uh, you know, when it came to whiteness, um, whiteness was actually just not really a category that uh, English sources use at this point. Um, that That's another another kind of uh, word and concept that becomes really salient in the eighteenth century. But in the 17th century, it just doesn't have the meaning um, in the way that it did for descendants of those 17th century settlers. And partially, that's because there were other, there were other categories that mattered much more to them. Um, religion, for example, was one of these, right? Uh, uh, English settlers divided the world into Christians. Um, that was usually the word that they used, and they generally meant Protestant Christians, right? Uh, and then there were other categories, like pagans, or heathens, or you know, for for um protestant englishmen the worst of all which was catholics (laughs) right like those were the those were the distinctions that that meant that meant something to them and that's how they categorized um human differences Uh, or there were other categories like civilized peoples and peoples who were not yet civilized and then you know irredeemable savages of some sort that was a um, a very, very complicated evolving discourse over this entire kind of colonial period. So obviously these are connected to modern configurations of race. It's not as though these are completely separate things um, that we shouldn't think about together. And actually that's one of the things I try to do in, in the book is actually look at uh, 17th century racial formations in ways that are attentive to these to these subtleties. Um, but those, But those concepts operate in different registers, right? They classify people differently. Um, so I start out with that note on language because, you know, I I, I wanted to I'd encourage the reader to think with the kind of descriptors that would that would have mattered to the people at the time and to alert them to the fact that I, I am trying to use those descriptors in um, in, you know, in the narrative of the book. So as to not impose categories that mean something in particular to 20th and 21st century readers uh, that they wouldn't have necessarily meant to um, to people at the time or that meant something different to people at the beginning of the book than they did to people at the end of the book
0: okay so thanks for clearing that up um so, so to, to jump in um i guess i should ask who were who the susquehannock people
1: <laughs> that's a great question um the the susquehannock people are uh so okay uh, on the most basic level um they're indigenous people to the susquehanna valley um they're for for the 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 time period that um, the book focuses on, in the kind of late fifteenth and, and uh, oh excuse me, um, late sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, um, lived primarily in the lower Susquehanna Valley around what's currently called Lancaster um, and the uh, area around that county. Um, genealogically, they're they're related to uh, northern Iroquoian groups uh, that later became the Haudenosaunee, if We go back several centuries. Um, but had had split off and and migrated south during the Little Ice Age for a variety of reasons, um, mostly in uh, according to you know the the latest archaeological theories, um, in a in a very slow process, right? This wasn't a, a unified group that split off all at once. It was um, small bands, kin groups, um, you know, families that that just kind of you know um, followed opportunities or or various kinds of incentives farther south. And um, only slowly, over the process of many decades uh, in the later part of the, the 16th century, um, coalesced into a more or less um, single community that became the Susquehannock Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, that process of coalescence was really central to their identity as a people. And uh, one of the points I try to make is that that, that coalescence process never really stopped. Uh, it's not as though there's a coalescence into Susquehannockness and then it stays um, uh, uh, static in any way. Um, The Susquehannock Nation continued incorporating many different groups into their polity uh, and their society and their culture over time. Um, And that was through multiple different kinds of processes. Uh, Sometimes it was um, peaceful alliance building processes uh, uh, through exchange and ceremonies that built links from people, uh, built links between different people. diplomatic relations that then become intermarriage and form new kin lines that bring those peoples together. Um, they also uh, uh, incorporated different uh, groups through the violent incorporation of captives uh, through warfare. Um, and then as well, over the course of the 17th century, in particular, as as colonization um, becomes really disruptive to native societies in, in the Northeast, um, and encourages larger scale violence than had previously been a part of that that area. Um, Susquehannocks also incorporated a large number of refugees from other nations, um, especially groups that were under attack by the by the Haudenosaunee. So so peoples that were dislocated um, in you know th- because of that violence uh, wound up seeking shelter um, with the Susquehannock nation, and they they proved to be particularly receptive to that. Um, particularly welcoming to outsiders, in ways that um, both incorporated them in important ways, but also respected their difference, right? Uh, It wasn't necessarily a process of assimilation so much as, um, that's why I use the word incorporation, right? It was people who were brought into the same polity and and brought into the kind of the webs of kinship and affiliation that defined that polity, uh, but without necessarily Insisting on any kind of um, cultural unity or, or um, uniformity through that, so so this so the Susquehannock polity was was highly diverse, and and all evidence suggests that uh, Susquehannock culture valued and promoted that diversity over time. So their their political and social cohesion came from shared values. And a, and a shared commitment to to consensus-based decision making
0: okay and so another another term another name that shows up quite a bit associated with the Susquehannock um is gandastoga um uh, can you s- say a little bit about that and am I pronouncing that correctly
1: sure uh gandastoga, is, gandastoga. Is, I think, right um and 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 this is based on textual sources so uh it's you know I'm not sure that I have the pronunciation exactly right either sure. although it is relevant that um that uh, uh, different sources spell it differently, but Gandestoga ultimately becomes anglicized as Conestoga mm-hmm. in the 18th century. So, so it's definitely you know in that ballpark of of Gandestoga, Conestoga, um, in a way that uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons I don't end up using that name is is simply because there is some level of uh, uh, uncertainty about its exactitude. Um, but I did end up using it to uh, uh, to describe. Um, essentially what we can think of as Susquehannock country. Um, you know, uh, uh, part, part of the problem with the Susquehannocks uh, in terms of descriptors is just that um, we only have names that other peoples use to describe them. We don't actually have any cases, any documented cases where uh, Susquehannocks um, said their own name to a European mm. that recorded it. Uh, so the the word Susquehannock is um, is an Algonquin language name. Um, that's uh, primarily groups from the Chesapeake uh, talking to English um, interlocutors uh, uh, used something along the lines of Susquehannock or Susquehannu or Susquehannaf or something along those lines. Um, and of course, it's it's complicated by the fact that uh, Europeans always had difficulty with indigenous you know phonemes. And uh, just had an abysmal spelling. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you know like that complicates how we, how we understand how these things should be pronounced. But so you know the, the, the word Sasquehanno is associated with an English zone. Um, they were also known as Minkwas uh, to um, Unami and Munsi speakers in the Delaware Valley. Uh, and in Iroquoian languages, um, there was usually some kind of variation of, of um, sometimes without the, without the beginning G. Uh, so something like um, andastoga or Andasta or uh, some variation of, like that, uh, but the, the the most consistent one and the most precise one that shows up um, in the Jesuit relations actually from um, Wendat interlocutors that were very closely related to the uh, uh, Susquehannocks um, and knew them well. That's where that's where that particular word comes from. Um, so, so Soga, you know, the reason why I wanted to use that was to to signify the fact that um, this is a this is a place that is associated with that people, and and place, you know, I really mean um, to say there, that this was a sovereign territory, right? Um, part of the reason I wanted to to signal that is is part of a wider effort throughout the book actually to use indigenous place names whenever possible. So I also refer to Iroquoia. Right, as Haudenosaunee country, Wendake for Wendat country, Lenapehoking for Lenape country, um, the Powhatans live in Santa Comica, right? All of these, all of these things um, draw attention to the fact that uh, indigenous peoples lived in sovereign territories that were understood um, and associated with them and, and that polity, right? Uh, they're not just some label vaguely floating on the map the way that we often render it in history books, uh, that these were countries that had a cohesion. Um, and even if that cohesion works worked differently than the borders of colonies or of modern nation states, uh, those were places that, that we need to, I think, remind ourselves um, as we read um, and when we talk about the people and their connection to place.
0: So, you know, given the many variations in just um, naming, spelling, non-standardized spelling, things like that, I, I imagine archival work um, you know, finding these people in the archives was a little bit of a challenge. Um, can you say a little bit about that?
1: It was. It was very challenging. Um, especially, I think uh, you know when when um, it's becoming increasingly common to go through large amounts of text using some sort of digital method, um, you know, keyword searches or uh, uh, something along those lines, and that doesn't really work when even the word Susquehannock uh, can be spelled. Literally two dozen different ways, you know, across all of these English sources. Much less all of the other variations on their on their name. So in this case, there really was no no um, no shortcut to just reading the stuff and uh, trying to identify all of the different cases where where they show up. Um, luckily for me and this project, uh, Susquehannocks show up everywhere. <laughs> um, that's kind of the you know the the paradox of of, of doing this research was that. The sources are are really frustratingly fragmentary, and oftentimes when they show up, they don't show up with a lot of fidelity or detail, um, simply because Europeans were interested in uh, they were interested in in recording the Susquehannocks as traders or diplomats. So we don't get any names. Um, we get you know descriptors like Sachem, or you know there was a great man who came and did you know this or that. Um, so in that sense, they're very frustrating. But on the other hand, the sources are very frustrating. But on on the other hand, uh, the sheer um, number of times that Susquehannock people do appear in the sources and play surprisingly important roles uh, is astounding. And and I think one of the reasons why uh, it, it hasn't quite been noticed by historians before is simply because of the geographic breadth of those appearances. You know, if you're only looking at Virginia as Edmund Morgan was, then they kind of show up out of nowhere and they disappear for the most part. Mm -hmm. But if you combine Virginia with Maryland and Delaware and New York and you include earlier iterations like New Netherland and New Sweden and you go even further to New England and New France, um, if you put all of those together then what you actually get is a kind of a critical mass of sources that um, takes a ton of time to go through. <laughs> but but yeah. also, I think, uh, uh, you know, in, in a way that 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 ultimately helps tell a story that that, that contains that breadth and that richness. Right. It, it sort of obviates against the tendency to to focus too narrowly on one phenomenon. And and draws attention to the ways that all of these places and all of these events are interconnected.
0: And that story that you tell um, from from the get go, from chapter one, has a lot to do with emotion. Um, mm. Emotions like grief and fear and and things like that play play a big role in the story. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to uh, play up emotion
1: to that degree? Sure. Um, that that became uh, so okay. That jumped out from the very beginning of my research as something that uh, was relevant in some way, even though it, it, it took a while for me to figure out exactly how to work with that uh, analytically. Um, if you, you know, when I, when I started looking at, at the, the few moments in 1675, 76, when Susquehannocks and, and English settlers are, are directly talking to each other, um, are either engaged in a process of trying to make peace or explaining why they are engaged in hostilities, um, emotion words jumped out right away. <clears throat> uh, one of them was um, a, a Susquehannock sachem who discussed uh, grief um, grief about the violence, grief about loss and um, grief about the sort of the the broken friendship between their peoples and and grief you know I think was a really obvious thing to jump out simply because of the historiographical literature uh, on Iroquois and mourning war, right? Um, This is a a very well-established scholarship that that, uh, posits that violence is is one method that Iroquoian peoples um, used for healing in the wake of of social trauma, right? The trauma of loss, uh, of death. And and, and this literature is really focused on on the Haudenosaunee. I think they're the most uh, richly studied in relation to this concept, but you see similar versions of it, uh, you know, across this cultural group and even more widely than that. and I and, and, you know, and it didn't take a lot of digging into the earlier Susquehanno sources um, to find, you know, pretty much the same kind of pattern. Uh, particularly the process where grief is expressed and then um, uh, processed in ways that lead to one of two outcomes. Um, uh, uh, men are called upon uh, by women uh, of the bereaved family to go out. And procure captives that are brought back to the the home community, and then either adopted into uh, the family, right, to sort of to to replace the dead or to heal the the um, the rift that was created by uh, that death, or to um, sort of expiate uh, emotional um, pain through the torture and execution of that captive, and and that's a pattern you see you know uh, pretty consistently with Susquehannocks across the century. Um, so when, when, when I found, you know grief, when, when I found that expression, I immediately knew that something important was going on, even if I knew it was going to take a while to figure out exactly what was going on. Um, English also English settlers also used emotion words, and, uh, and they use them a lot, um, so, so much so that the sources produced in that time period during their conflict with the Susquehannocks is just saturated by really powerful, uh, emotional terms, just um, des- descriptions of of feelings. Um and what was striking about that case was that it was so thoroughly connected to some kind of political content, right? Um we're I'm not talking about here journals or or uh, or you know letters to um, uh, you know, intimate relations elsewhere, although there are some letters that that do this. But I'm talking about primarily petitions and manifestos and, recruitment drives for, you know, rebellious movements or loyalist propaganda, um, you know, documents that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be so much feelings. Um, and in fact, you know, the English settlers are just constantly talking about how they feel and about how others are making them feel. And uh, the fact that there was, you know, um, so much of it just clued me clued me into uh, what seemed like Something that was more than just rhetoric, right? There were non-intuitive patterns to the ways that these terms were used that deserved, that needed, really, um, not just deserved, that absolutely needed closer analysis to understand what was going on. So, so I mean, I you know, just to take one example, um, I found it really striking that uh, English men who were somewhere in the vicinity of Susquehannock raiders. Um, Oftentimes, not actually the victims of, but just potential, like feeling as though they were vulnerable to uh, Susquehannock violence. Um, They expressed fear as something, not that they felt, but that their families felt, right? Their wives and their children. uh, And of course, you know, we're talking about a patriarchal household. So also servants and enslaved people, right? Their members of their household were afraid but not them, right? It would be emasculating for a man to say that he was afraid of indigenous raiders. So men are constantly talking about their fears, um, the fears of of their dependents, right? Their wives and their children, rather than their own fears. Mm. Uh, The only time that they're usually expressing their own fears is not when human lives are at stake, but their property, their estates. And that too, I think is really significant because those go together, right? Um, People and property are both part of a patriarchal household. And the fact that only one of them men are actually afraid of, right, causes them to feel fear, uh, uh, is a suggestion about the ways that those are processed kind of differently. So like grief, I think that the nature of fear is structured in English society by, by specific social and cultural settings. Um, and in this case, it, it imbued it with a, with a particular kind of political potency. Right. Um, Because if fear is unmanly, but men are feeling it in all of these kinds of ways, then um, the question is like, whose fault is that? And what are they supposed to do about it?
0: Hmm. And that's really interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So it was really just, you know, the the fact that both of these languages of feeling were emerging in the same context, uh, one Susquehannock and and one English um, absolutely demanded that there be some kind of study of, of how they were related um, more than anything else, right? Because it's not the it's not as though just one of them is happening and the other one is happening, you know, concurrently or or in parallel. I think it's it's relevant that if one cultural group um, responds to grief by committing violence against outsiders, and then the other cultural group, right, those outsiders, uh, consider the fear that they feel to be some kind of violation in and of itself, right, without the actual violence. And mm-hmm. how does that complicated dynamic drive everyone involved in these events
0: yeah yeah gosh yeah so interesting okay so early on um also in chapter one you talk about the meteoric rise and catastrophic fall as you say of the Sus- Susquehannock people um even prior to the decade that you focus on which is 1675 roughly to 1685 um so you can can you talk a little bit about the early rise and fall um of these people and I should say fall and I'm doing air quotes Um, and how it sets the stage for what you're going to say later on in the book.
1: Yeah, the Susquehannock's are, they're one of the most important indigenous groups in the 17th century, east of the Appalachian uh, mountains, um, which I think is actually kind of um, astonishing that they haven't gotten more historical study because uh, simply because of that importance. You know, I I, I think once you actually look at the, at, at, Um, What is happening during the 17th century on a a regional scale, and if you're really paying attention to, um, you know, what's happening in all of these indigenous countries, uh, they're, they're just central actors in in, um, places that span from, you know, the eastern Great Lakes to the deep south. Uh, So a lot of that is related, a lot of their importance is related to their, to, as I was saying earlier, their embrace of diversity and their ability to forge connections with um, outsiders, with you know, uh, members outside the, the South Quahannic Nation through various forms of alliance and incorporation. Um, <clears throat> what I was talking about earlier was the way that they had done that with indigenous nations, um, but they also do that to Europeans. And uh, that I think is, is, a, is a crucial source of understanding how they build power and influence over the course of the 17th century. Um, being in the lower Susquehanna River Valley, um, they just kind of had a certain good geographic luck to be in a space of really um, intense multilateral competition between European uh, colonial endeavors. Uh, the Delaware Valley is where New Sweden um, was was focused for its brief life. New Netherland was, uh, you know, based in what's now New York um, on Manhattan, but also had expanded into the Delaware Valley and competed with New Sweden. Uh, you have Maryland and the, you know, Upper Chesapeake um, that is making claim to that same Delaware River Valley and Susquehanna River Valley uh, territory, and of course you have Virginia, which um, at least in in the early days. Was also competing with Maryland for that same kind of territorial access. And, and in fact, it, it was Virginians who made the first uh, um, alliance with Susquehannocks uh, for mutual defense and for uh, um, economic exchange. So rather, you know, um, because I think partially because of their of their um, that culture of, of valuing diversity and that ability to kind of be really promiscuous in, in um, creating relationships with outsiders uh the susquehannocks didn't feel beholden to make alliances with only one of these people right to choose the swedish over the dutch or anything like that they they engaged with all of them um and for the most part largely on their own terms because none of the none of the european actors that i've mentioned had particularly strong presences in that region so just the fact that the susquehannocks were relatively populous and relatively concentrated Uh, meant that they could do things like dictate the terms of how those kind of contacts were going to proceed. Um, And they pursued a variety of different strategies for this. One of the things they did was grant land um, to European groups, uh, oftentimes the same land to multiple groups, right? Um, Because even though Europeans insisted on thinking of this as a sale, right, quote unquote sale... Um, that's not how any indigenous nations in the area thought of land, and that's not like it wasn't an alienable commodity that um, they could sell once. so it, it, it was it was about creating the conditions of access to and and rights to. So there was nothing wrong, according to Susquehanna conceptions of land use, um, to grant both Swedes uh, uh, and um, Dutch, you know access to the same land in order to trade. so so doing that created really favorable conditions for trade. And it allowed them to create um, a really extensive network of trade and alliance um, that that increased their ability to engage with other indigenous peoples much further afield than they had before. And um, I think a a perfect example of this is uh, one that's well documented. I think this is not an um, unusual example. It's just one that makes it into the European archive. in the early 1670s, the German explorer uh, John Lederer, um, on behalf of, of Virginia, you know, he was working through uh, Virginian permission. Um, he he tried to mount several expeditions to explore uh, new paths beyond the Virginia frontier, like basically beyond the Tidewater region. Um, he tried to use uh, Powhatan guides two times, and both times they. Um, weren't able to penetrate the geographies beyond that tidewater region, right? They they just didn't have the knowledge, the geographic knowledge, um, to do that. So those expeditions had to turn back. The third expedition um, relied on one guide, uh, a Susquehannock named Jack Sedivin, and even though we're already talking about southern Virginia, right? We're already talking hundreds of miles away from the Susquehannock homeland in the Susquehanna Valley. but Jack Settlevan was able to guide laterer through the territories of at least ten different indigenous nations in the southeast, all the way through what's now Georgia and South Carolina. Um, got as far, you know, like through Tuscarora country, through um, what later became Catawba country. Uh, he had not only the geographic knowledge, but also the social connections to us to 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 be able to get safe passage and hospitality from all of these different groups, which I think suggests that. He wasn't new to this area, right? These were people that um, this Susquehannock man, Jack Zedovan, already knew, already had relationships with, was already familiar with. And to me, that suggests that he's just the tip of the iceberg, right? He is uh, just a, a one particular visible manifestation of Susquehannock travelers that were going all all over the place, way beyond um, the territory we might think of as um, in in ways that were often very closely connected to various forms of exchange, right? Um, Goods and and wealth uh, that they had, you know, that Susquehanna traders had acquired from Europeans and then distributed um, to all of these other nations that they were in contact with. So I think, you know, um, part of the reason I say, uh, I use the phrase meteoric rise, um, I think one one kind of crude measure, crude but useful measure of that rise um, is just purely in terms of population. Um, during the first half of the 17th century, um, by comparison, um, the Haudenosaunee nations lost about 50% of their population, uh, Powhatans lost about 80% of their population through some combination of, of war and disease and dislocation and um, the pressures of colonization and, and all of its interlocking manifestations. In the same time period, the Susquehannock population doubled, and uh, um, it's not because they were insulated through distance, it's it's not because of any, you know, obvious kind of um, uh, uh, alternative factor, except for this geographic uh, uh, location and their ability to create all of these different um, uh, connections that were harmonious rather than not harmonious. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. That were from a Susquehannock point of view, complementary, right? That all served their purposes rather than creating conflict that they weren't able to manage. Um, and they were in fact able to to enforce their own set of um, preferred power relations on these European relationships. Uh, Maryland tried to kick Virginia out of the Upper Chesapeake trade zone, and the Susquehannocks forced Maryland to allow Virginians to continue trading um the Susquehannocks insisted that the swedish allow the presence of a dutch outpost on the delaware but at the same time they also uh, uh extended protection to the new sweden colony when it was at its most vulnerable including from dutch incursions right so all of this is just to say that the um the meteoric rise had had all of these different uh, um sources that were about connections with others and the ability to create power and extend influence um, over a wide, uh, a really wide geographic zone. Um, the catastrophic fall came really with the expansion of Haudenosaunee Morning Wars uh, after mid-century. Um, you know, starting really in 1649 with the their the kind of massive assault on Wendake. Uh, those morning wars um, devastated Susquehannock allies, and um, within a few years brought the Susquehannocks in direct conflict with all five of the Haudenosaunee nations. Um, so in the beginning, Susquehannocks actually weathered that assault better than any of their indigenous neighbors, partially because they had these European alliances that um, gave them sources of martial power. I think one of my favorite examples is just the fact that uh, when um, Uh, Several Haudenosaunee nations tried to assault the the main um, town of of Gandastoga in the early 1660s. The Susquehannocks were outnumbered, but they had Dutch muskets and Swedish cannons and a fort that had been built partially by Swedish engineers and defenders that included Maryland militia and allies from Lenape and Erie nations. So the ability to harness all of those sources of power uh, was crucial to their survival during this really difficult period, but but you know but there were limits to that. Um, you know, as war ground uh, ground on for for decades, uh, they were pretty much continuously at war with the Haudenosaunee for over twenty years. Um, that took a toll on Susquehannock population, and um, by sixteen seventy five, it had it had it had uh, uh, been reduced by about ninety percent uh, over the course of just a single generation.
0: So. Um... Moving into chapter two and, and the, the sort of main decade that you're talking about throughout the book, um, you know, you, you discuss how fear and mutual distrust between settlers and native people end up leading to uh, what will become Bacon's Rebellion. Um, so kind of a two part question here. Can you tell us how that worked and then also sort of work in uh, how it is you talk about this this sense of patriarchal obligation? Uh, on the part of colonial rulers to protect uh, settlers.
1: Yeah uh, so so in chapter two I do a lot of work with rumors uh, and and by rumors really I just mean um, information of, of dubious accuracy but which people nonetheless circulate for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. and, and in this in this kind of context you know in a um, in wartime, basically, uh, it circulates because Virginians and Susquehannocks um, conflict, creates conditions of imminent danger for all sorts of people. And, and settlers' lives depend on figuring out what's going on and what they should do about it. So even though they have imperfect information, they nonetheless have to process that information and, and act on it. So th- the starting point, um, obviously, was settler fears about susquehannocks, uh, which often relied on a great deal of supposition and news that traveled um, quite quickly in, in terms of panic um, partially because the Susquehannocks just, you know, uh, had a particular mode of warfare that relied on stealth and sudden attacks. Uh, it, you know, they're not massing to to assault Jamestown. They're attacking isolated plantations. Um, they're they're doing they're doing their attacks in a way that is, um, in a lot of ways, you know, kind of intended to uh, um, strike fear into their enemies in order to maximize the impact that they can have. Um, so. You know, rumors about this violence spread very, very quickly. Um, I think one indicator of this is just the fact that uh, sources about it, settler casualties vary enormously. The most reliable ones suggest there was about like 30, 36, um, who thirty six settlers or so that were killed by Susquehannock raiders. But if you look at the the sources that are repeating rumors of the um, extent of this this violence, it's, you know, 60 or 100 or 200 or 500, or just sort of like this, uh, you know, completely undifferentiated carnage that's happening everywhere at all time, every day. Uh, And so, you know, that creates a certain kind of environment, even for people who are really quite far away from any sort of imminent danger of fighting. Um, It very quickly sort of envelops the entire Virginia colony in in this, you know, kind of, uh, I think... In this feeling of vulnerability, regardless of any objective vulnerability, but this fear of Susquehannocks um, and and the way that it ramifies uh, through those spread of rumors, um, pretty much right away gets transposed onto unrelated indigenous groups in Virginia, um, and specifically, I'm talking about the the Algonquin nations that had once been members of the Powhatan paramountcy, uh, who you know. After the, the treaty that they signed in 1646, you know they were militarily defeated by uh, Virginia militia and forced to sign this treaty. Um, part of that treaty made them uh, subjects of the King of England, right? They they acknowledged in that treaty the sovereignty of the English king, and uh, that treaty guaranteed them certain rights and protections under English law as subjects of the king. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest that this is a, a great relationship, and it's certainly not one that the Powhatans wanted, but I think the point is, is that it gave them a, a particular place in English law, in Virginian law, um, usually described as, as uh, tributary nations, right? That was the idea, that they offered tribute in exchange for this protection. Um, <clears throat> and this was, you know, uh, uh, again, like not a great relationship, um, and, and Virginia settlers had for decades... Uh, been violating the terms of that treaty, they'd been illegally acquiring land, they'd been enslaving tributary natives in ways that the treaty had forbidden, right? Um, Settler actions had made conditions of survival increasingly difficult. And so there was a lot of contention. Uh, So that created conditions where rumors of Susquehannock violence um, could kind of pull uh, uh, these, these Algonquin groups into that conversation against their will. Even though they had nothing to do with the Susquehannocks, they didn't have any established diplomatic relationships. They were not really part of that, you know, web of of Susquehannock connections or that network. Um, but settlers kind of started talking about them as though they were, or that they might be, or that there were, you know, furtive meetings or secret alliances or possible, you know, conspirings that was going to lead them to act together it uh, uh in those conditions of of the spread of rumors what, what you have is uh, uh settlers less and less often making distinctions that they knew right that they had previously used like the difference between susquehannock and pamunkey um and instead just saying indians mm-hmm. that was kind of an increasingly important category for them was the indians are doing this or the indians are doing that and this flattened group uh, what it what it did was rhetorically um, create a um, an identity, an indigenous identity that made was inherently in opposition to and hostile to uh, settlers. So when so when settlers start mobilizing to fight back, um, you know one of the enemies that they they fight back against is their own indigenous allies. And I use en- like enemies there is in scare quotes, right? Because the tributary nations in Virginia were not. Uh, enemies of of the Virginian settlers, they were not engaged in um, military activities uh, that were you know opposed to to settlers or that threatened their safety, but settlers treated them as though they were or that they might be, and therefore that preemptive action would be necessary. So so that's the the conditions that led directly to the the first um, really the first major moment of Bacon's Rebellion, which is when. Uh, uh, a group of illegal militia gather um, with no authority, uh, um, you know, no no permission from the governing authorities. Um, They name Nathaniel Bacon their leader. Uh, They call themselves the volunteers. Uh, So, you know, um, they're not just some rabble. They are uh, self-appointed protectors of their families and uh, and the colony at large. And they attack the Okanichi people um, who are, Pretty pretty far south, actually, for Virginia. They're beyond the borders of of what Virginia claimed um, in modern North Carolina. And uh, uh, it's really telling that the Okaniches had, you know, they were allied with the Virginia government. They were trade partners. They had actually demonstrated their 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 friendship to the Virginia regime by attacking and nearly destroying an entire group of Susquehannocks who had come into their territory. Um, But nonetheless, uh, Bacon and these volunteers just considered them to be Indian enemies. And and in that process, right in the process of attacking them, um, made them actual enemies. Uh, And that pattern repeated itself with other indigenous groups in Virginia in ways that created a much, much, much larger and um, messier uh, um, uh, series of of, of violent conflicts than had previously existed when it was just the Susquehannocks who were involved. this also brings, like, that's also the moment when settler uh, civil strife becomes part of the story. Because the reason why the volunteers and Nathaniel Bacon had organized themselves was because of the, um, their understanding of the government having failed. The government was supposed to protect them more than anything else this was the the, the the patriarchal relationship that you were gesturing toward a minute ago like the, the English understood the entire kind of order of political society to operate based on uh, a patriarchal principle um, where you have a center of authority who's a male figure and that male figure protects those who are subordinate and dependent upon him and you know, this was expressed all the way up into like the divine order of the universe with you know God being the sovereign and everyone um, beneath him sort of giving obedience to his divine will in exchange for uh, uh, sort of the promise of salvation, right? That's kind of at the biggest level, but it also had, had uh, smaller versions where the king was like the patriarch of the nation and the subjects of the realm were his metaphorical children. And then, literally, at the level of the family, right? Every household had a patriarch, and his wife and children and other dependents, um, including servants and enslaved people, were were sort of, you know, were expected to um, render obedience and deference to him in exchange for him providing and, crucially, protecting them. So when when the patriarch fails to provide protection, then it is a kind of a breaking of a compact, and implicitly, it it it. it it creates a uh, space for people who are usually expected to render obedience or deference to not render obedience or deference, right? To engage in forms of rebellion that could be as small as, um, you know, refusing an order to work that day or, you know, um, talking back to the patriarch when he was, you know, giving them some sort of order all the way up until actual armed rebellion. And um, that's sort of the discourse that these volunteers adopt when they go out against you know, their constructed category of the Indian enemy. They do so on, on the justification that the entire patriarchal order has broken down, that the government's failure has made it impossible for them as men to protect their own households and that therefore they have to take it into their own hands. They have to claim authority in a way that um, would not normally be acceptable, but is acceptable now under these conditions. And and as you can might as you might imagine, the governing authorities are not willing to accept this, right? Um, this this kind of usurpation of of the power uh, uh, to decide when um, the colony goes to war is is not something that Governor Sir William Barclay is willing to accept. And um, in part because he was the one who was responsible for creating this system of tributary relations that made Algonquins in Virginia uh, allies of the Virginian regime rather than opponents. And so Nathaniel Bacon's attack, the the volunteers attack on that system was by proxy an attack on his personal authority. So that's that's when these vigilantes become rebels
0: Okay, so you, you write in chapter three that after uh a, a quote wrenching series of, of tragedies, Susquehannock's scattered as as they needed to and um as they saw fit, but their power and influence um in sort of a contradictory way, maybe seems to only have you know only to have grown um at this point. So how did that happen?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um <clears throat> So the few historians who've, who've really seriously looked at this moment in Susquehannock history, um, which is not many, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the last time there was even a, an article that was specifically about Susquehannock history was Francis Jennings in 1968. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, historians tend to characterize this moment as one of supreme weakness for the Susquehannock nation, right, like with the, the portrayal is that um, under assault from colonial violence, uh, the nation basically just dissolves. And and what I try to show is that um, the Susquehannock Nation faced this moment of crisis pretty much exactly the way that you would expect from a political community that was based on on matrilineal kinship and consensus politics. Um, You know, they're they're put in a position where they're, they're forced from their town, um, you know, they had relocated to the Potomac, which is what brought them into the region. They're, they're forced to uh, flee from that town. And then there's a question of what to do, what, what, what to do next. Uh, do they hide? Do they fight back? Do they make peace? Do they seek refuge with other allies? Do they surrender to the mercy of their enemies? You know, there's a lot of different courses of action and it's not really clear which which one is the, is the best um, to follow. And it's complicated by the fact that the established leaders of Gandestoga had recently been killed. The the, the people that had the most established authority and the best record of successfully leading their people um, had been removed from the stage. And um, uh, some through recent illness, um, but others through the direct action of colonial militia who murdered uh, several of the Susquehannock leadership while they were supposedly negotiating under a flag of truce. So what happens then is that you have multiple different new leaders in the the Susquehannock nation and finding consensus is more difficult than than it normally would be. And and so in that kind of situation, um, they essentially uh, agree to disagree and break into smaller groups based on specific uh, kin connections or matrilineages or uh, um, you know some sort of, of agreement with a particular relatively new and untested leader and so so ultimately rather than follow any one of those um, you know those those uh, strategies for what to do next, different groups of Susquehannocks do all of those things um, one group moves to Ohio to the Ohio Valley uh, an area, an area where Susquehannocks had previously been um, involved as traders, and uh, they essentially just try to get away from the violence. They remove themselves from the situation entirely. Um, another group seeks refuge with the the Lenape and Munsee peoples, who were kinfolk in the Delaware Valley that they had close relationships with. Um, another group moved south to try to recruit allies that would help fight back against English settlers. Uh, that's the group that. Wound up running afoul of the Oconeees. Um, there's another group that tries to make peace with the Haudenosaunee. and and of course there's the there's the group that stays in Virginia and that ultimately um, kickstarts Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, th- and and actually there's also uh, there's another group that goes to uh, to Maryland. They they return to the Susquehanna Valley and they uh, are active in Maryland's territory, primarily by um, fighting back not against settlers but about the indigenous nations in Maryland who were actively assisting the settlers by fighting against the Susquehannock's. Native Algonquin uh, fighters were generally much, much more effective combatants than the kind of like bumbling vigilantes under Bacon who who really never managed to do anything uh, other than attack um, people who thought they were friends. (laughs) Uh, It's really sort of a, um, a terrible irony that the volunteers never, never managed to do to do any damage to um, to the Susquehannocks. They only damage indigenous peoples in Virginia that started out as their allies. So, in any case, um, what this does is I call this the the Susquehannock scattering, and um, I call it a, a scattering because it's not a permanent uh, um, movement. It's not as though this is a diaspora that lasts for a really long time. It's it's a temporary. Uh, a state of affairs it's a it's a response to a specific crisis and in relatively short order all of these different groups um, wind up trying to reconstitute in one way or another but the effect is that it it transforms the geography of the event right this is not no longer a virginia story this is a story that spans you know a huge chunk of the eastern seaboard and it brings other indigenous groups and other uh, groups of colonial settlers into in, into the mix, right? It, it hugely complicates this, um, and I think the, the crucial point here is just to underscore that uh, this is not a, a move of desperation. Um, every one of these Susquehanna groups is activating networks that already existed, right? Um, these are all peoples that they had uh, uh, long established relations with, so you know, rather than than a kind of a um, a, a desperate flight, uh, this is really just calling on their existing distributed networks of power and influence that had been growing for decades. And that's what ultimately allows them to, to marshal forces that are much greater than they could possibly marshal on their own.
0: So in chapter four, which is called The Contagion of Conspiracy, you write that conspiracy theory was a, a vector for rebellion across English North America, so how so?
1: Yeah, Vector, um, Vector is a bit of a metaphorical play uh, on two different things. W- one is just the fact that English settlers tend, um, have a pervasive tendency to talk about rebellion as though it's a disease. It's a, a kind of a metal- medical discourse that gets applied to the body politic um, in a way that kind of uh, strangely imparts a kind of like infectious agency to the phenomenon of rebellion that makes it like not about human decisions, it just sort of naturally spreads on its own, right? It has this horrible tendency to take over um, by, by, you know, metastasizing. Um, the other, the other reference is to a classic uh, article on conspiracy theory by Richard Hofstadter um, called The Paranoid Style in American Politics which uh is sort of like traces um the tendency toward conspiratorial thinking in in a huge span of american history but um but characterizes it as a pathology um you know essentially says like this is a this is some sort of distorted view that is integral to american politics but in a way that is like clearly um nuts like it's kind of nuts and and it obviously has has you know damaging effects uh, and, and, you know, my starting point is just to say that I don't think that's a helpful way to think about conspiracy theory. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the first one to say this. There's a, a, a rapidly growing body of scholarship that's seeking to understand the ways that conspiracy theory is productive of politics um, in ways that we need to understand rather than, you know, distortions that we that we need to clarify to get at some sort of real underlying story. Um, in a lot of ways, the conspiracy theory is the real story in this case. And so um that's why that's why I say vectors because um you know, when you have a situation that that is kind of growing increasingly chaotic, you have rumors that just multiply. you have a growing geography, you have more and more actors um, and less and less certainty about what any of them are doing and why., uh, conspiracy theory serves a really important purpose in that it, it clarifies things, right? That the essence of the conspiracy theory is that it imparts almost a kind of singular totalizing agency to some sort of nefarious force that is pulling the strings, right? That is making everything happen for a particular reason. And um, that may or may not be accurate. Uh, the weird thing about conspiracy theory is that it often is based on a kernel of accuracy, even though that gets, like overlaid by all sorts of hysterical elaborations. Um, But more importantly is is just that the the clarity that conspiracy theory brings um, allows for, or I guess facilitates uh, political action. It it allows people to um, engage in concerted, uh, 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 coordinated movements in order to accomplish a specific goal instead of kind of running around individually you know trying to figure out what's going on and not sure what to do about it conspiracy theory really focuses energy and um that's what it did in in virginia uh, you sort of you you got at first a kind of a uh, among the rebels the um the volunteers and their their sympathizers Um, You know, at at first there was a sense of outrage that the government would consider them rebels just for defending themselves against the quote unquote Indian enemy. Um, But then, you know, uh, uh, there's a a way of interpreting that, which they quickly latch on to, that is conspiratorial. Um, It's not this kind of diffuse, complicated uh, question about where is where does authority lie and how how should we understand tributary indigenous nations? It's just that there are enemy Indians and the government is conspiring with them to destroy their political opponents. Right? That's the kind of that's the narrative that emerges here, um, and 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 this is this also gets uh, uh, manifested in Maryland, where there's another element that's even um, more incendiary, which is just the fact that Maryland um, is a colony that is a proprietary colony of. Uh, Lord Baltimore and his family, the Calvert family, who are Catholic. Um, The majority of of colonists in Maryland are not Catholic. And um, England has a long tradition of uh, anti-Catholicism that essentially just equates that religious orientation with with tyranny and arbitrary rule and um, a sort of like a general assault on Protestant England writ large. And so, in in Maryland, the same kind of, of uh, discourses that are circulating in Virginia, wind up getting amplified because you have you sort of there's the uh, the construction among Protestant settlers, of this kind of like almost cosmically powerful enemy um, consortium, that includes you know Lord Baltimore and the the Catholic uh, Calvert family and their circle, who are ultimately taking orders from the Pope who you know, Protestants consider the Antichrist. Uh, Indians are their, their kind of tools that, that, that they're deploying in order to um, not only attack Protestants in Maryland, but actually coordinate with Jesuit secret agents from New France, right? There's, there's a way that, that all of this just kind of spreads out to encompass all of their different fears and make it part of one singular story and, and the answer, of course, is just to, to overthrow the government in Maryland, right? That, that's kind of that's the political action that will solve um, this conspiratorial problem. So that's why that's where I say conspiracy theory is both a vector that spreads the conflict and also has this this focusing effect of of mobilizing political energy toward um, a particular kind of of action. And 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 just the important thing here, I think, is that. Um, that action is inherently anti-Indigenous, right? Indians are, are the constructed category of the Indian is central to all of these conspiracy theories. And and that's something that has gotten, um, that previous scholarship on Bacon's Rebellion has has, I think not fully appreciated, is that uh, even though there are all kinds of other uh, concerns that settlers have, about political um, rights or about economic inequality or you know, all, all, there's all kinds of, of grievances that get pulled into this, um, this maelstrom. But anti-indigeneity is, is central to the rebel agenda all the way to the very end. And, and there's there's one particularly telling moment that I think really drives this point home because um, in early 1677, when it's, you know, when the rebellion is on its last legs, right, um, basically you just have pockets of resistance that are systematically being mopped up by by government forces. Um, one of the last holdouts is a group at West Point that uh, um, is an interracial group of um, exploited laborers, servants and enslaved people, white and black. And they ultimately are able to negotiate with the government to surrender in exchange for their freedom. They get a guarantee that, that they will be released from their obligations to their current masters, which is sort of, you know, um, we can imagine is one of the reasons why they took up arms in the first place. But they have literally one condition of this surrender other than that um, that sort of like, uh, uh, give us our liberty. Their one condition is that they're able to, to maintain, they're able to retain Um, their firearms so that they can fight against the indians so even that group right even that group that uh liberal historians have often pointed to as this kind of like fleeting moment of interracial solidarity Mm, mm -hmm. um it's ultimately constructed on this 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 platform of um of anti-indigenous violence
0: yeah and that's that's probably at least sort of missed in the edmund morgan version of of, of this history
1: absolutely i think um i don't think it was like it to my knowledge the first time that 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 um that the construction of that particular uh uh, scenario was um the anti-indigenous element was pointed out was by an article by um uh jk olani kawanui uh Mm -hmm. and um Really, just sort of, you know, trying to push back against the the way that it had been romanticized by historians right. as as this interracial solidarity, right? Like as this kind of like black and white standing together against oppressors. Um, and and her point was very very simple, which is just that, you know, part of part of the cause that they're committed to, part of what they state as as one of their their own uh, goals, is, you know, is to continue fighting against this perceived indigenous enemy. Mm-hmm. And, and we can't lose sight of that because uh, that, you know, that um, the way that different oppressed groups get drafted into the power relations of settler colonialism, um, the way that especially like people of African descent, um, you know, who are themselves like struggling for liberation from enslavement, uh, the way that, that settler colonial power sort of conscripts them into movements like this, uh, you know, movements that are dedicated toward, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but dedicated to indigenous genocide. Um, that's a that's something that is really tough to grapple with, and I think we, you know, especially in this moment, just because Bacon's Rebellion carries so much historiographical weight, uh, we really need to attend to that more carefully.
0: Okay, so in chapter five, you you. Right about a renewed focus on reconstituting order um conferences and, and covenants particularly around 1677 represented these attempts to end the anarchy and the, the violence that you've been talking about um how did those efforts play out and and how does your book shed some new
1: light on them? Mm. <clears throat> uh yeah so I, there are two basically there are two really important ones um one of them is the uh, a conference in Albany in 1677 between English colonies and the Haudenosaunee, uh, which is often pointed to as the kind of the the real beginnings of the Covenant Chain Alliance um, between the English uh, colonies and the Haudenosaunee that that really kind of shapes um, Anglo-Indigenous relations well into the 18th century. And the other is the Treaty of Middle Plantation in in Virginia. Um, so so the first one, uh, the treaty in in Albany that what i tried to do with that one is to um, recast it as essentially a continuation of a more important council that happened earlier in the year and which didn't involve colonists at all uh, it was a council that took place at the in the lenape um town of shackamaxon which was a, a traditional kind of diplomatic center primarily between susquehannocks and haudenosaunee but um also including a variety of other indigenous nations, and whose principal project was to make peace, uh, to end the several decades of war between Gandistoga and Iroquois. Um, that that council ultimately ended <clears throat> with uh, a Susquehannock agreement to um, kind of uh, split into two different groups. One one group that would stay in the Delaware Valley among the Lenape and Munsees, um, and another group that would move to Iroquois and uh, in one way or another, kind of join the Haudenosaunee. Um, Now, when we look at that, when we really take that Shackamaxon conference seriously, then we look at the the, the Albany conference that happens later in the year uh, uh, has a slightly different valence because the Albany conference was really about, um, really came about because the colony of Maryland wanted to make peace with the Haudenosaunee. They wanted to make sure that the violence um, that they had been experiencing primarily at Susquehannock hands would come to an end. And what the Maryland uh, delegates really tried to do was to say, okay, we understand now that Susquehannocks are in your country. So you need to control them, right? Like we want you to make sure that they don't attack any of our people. And by our people, the, the Maryland delegates included, um, Algonquin tributaries within Maryland's borders. And um, what the Haudenosaunee ultimately do is they, they create uh, uh, a really strong commitment to a forum between themselves and the English to mediate future disputes, right? That's why this is important as the kind of the creation of an ongoing relationship. But the Susquehannocks are not present at the conference, and the Haudenosaunee actually quite carefully don't make any promises, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, to um, in any way restrict their activities. They, they they, just, they sort of refuse Maryland's framing that this is their job to like restrain um, Susquehannock actions. So in terms of, of, of uh, the Susquehannock story, um, it's not actually the Albany conference that changes much of anything. Um, it, it does create that forum that, that becomes a really important way for um, English colonists and uh, Haudenosaunee to speak to each other. Uh, but it doesn't resolve any of the, un, the underlying problems um, that have been ongoing between the Susquehannocks and uh, either settlers or these Algonquin tributaries. It's the Shack and Maxon conference that creates the conditions that um, really change the dynamics of this entire event. The other the other uh, major peace conference that occurs um, is the Treaty of Middle Plantation in Virginia, and um, this is this is really uh, a remarkable story about um, the Pamunkey uh, um a woman uh, who was the the you know the chief of the Pamunkey Nation, named Cokocoweske, um, and uh, she was she was a descendant of, of Powhatan and Opakankanao. Uh, or of, of Kenkenau, um and sort of like part of a really important matrilineage in uh, in Powhatan history and uh, had been one of Nathaniel Bacon's principal targets. He actually specifically went after her during Bacon's rebellion. Um, and, and she was this figure who was able to, uh, she had very close connections to English men. Um, she cultivated several friendships with Virginian men um, including a guy named Francis Morrison, who went on to become, um, he, he at the time of the rebellion, he was an agent operating in, in London, and essentially uh, explaining this entire situation and, and single-handedly recommending how the Crown should respond to everything happening in Virginia. And it's really remarkable that if you look at his correspondence that he sends to the Privy Council and the Lords of Trade and all of the bodies who are Formulating imperial policy, he's like, you know, you need this many soldiers and this many provisions, and here's the important people to to know. And by the way, Coca Koeski, this queen of Pamunkey, she's on our side. You really need to back her. Um, it's crucially important for the future of Virginia that we, you know, that we like that we support this this chief. Um, So the level of support that she is able to garner from the highest levels of power is remarkable. And ultimately, what that means is that um, Francis Morrison, this Virginian, uh, comes back as part of a Royal Commission of Investigation that is responsible for restoring order to Virginia and negotiates a treaty to create a new set of relationships between the Algonquin tributary nations and the Virginia, but also between the Algonquin tributary nations and the crown um, for the first time, that direct crown relationship. Uh, and, and and Koko Koweske manages to get a, a, an astonishing number of concessions and protections, um, guarantees against the enslavement of her people, um, guarantees of uh, the ability to access traditional foodstuffs and um, practice uh, traditional uh, forms of of resource gathering, um, protection for land rights, uh, uh, all kinds of things that um, had been steadily eroding over time. The other remarkable thing that the Treaty of Middle Plantation accomplishes is that it essentially reconstitutes the Powhatan chiefdom, the the paramountcy, which had been dismantled in earlier treaties. By naming Cacahucee the sort of like the queen of all Virginia Indians, and um, this is a novel political structure, right? That creates a kind of a nested hierarchy of sovereignty, where Cacahucee owes allegiance to the King of England, but all Native people in Virginia owe allegiance to Cacahucee, right? Um, and that, that is, that is a surprising outcome actually, (laughs) um, you know, I, I think that this is something that, um, historians need to, to interrogate more, more deeply because this is an opportunity for like, you know, if we're thinking about, um, an imperial agenda of just coming in and imposing order, you know, on a situation that has devolved into chaos, uh. They, like, they can easily just sort of sweep away any vestige of Native sovereignty if they want to, but instead they actually strengthen it through this figure of Coca Koweski in the Treaty of Middle Plantation. And, and that treaty is, is really um, significant, not only for the time, uh, uh, you know, what it did to, uh, um, in the 17th century to, to create conditions for um, Indigenous survival, but, you uh, I'll just add that it was also um, a centerpiece of the uh, a fairly recent case for Virginia Indian nations to gain federal recognition in 2015 and 2017. So that treaty has been has had an ongoing significance all the way down till today um, and a continuing significance.
0: Chapter six, Capturing Iroquoia gets its title from your assertion that Susquehannock's who in the late 1670s were adopted into Iroquoia found ways to influence and even you know, steer Haudenosaunee politics. And you write that, quote, Haudenosaunee warriors had captured the Susquehannocks, but somehow the Susquehannocks captured Iroquois. And by this point, I'm sure listeners um, won't be surprised that such a relatively small number of Susquehannocks had a really outsized influence, um, mm-hmm. you know, beyond what you would expect from their numbers. Uh, so can you explain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um- I think in, in some ways, this is the, the crucial pivot point in, in the story that I want to tell, because uh, previous scholars have usually seen um, the, the migration of, of Susquehannocks into Iroquoia after that Shakamaon Council as pretty much the end of their story, right? Like that's when that's when the nation as such no longer really exists. They're now part of Iroquoia. And if, and you know, according to a traditional understanding of the way that Haudenosaunee morning war practices, operate, um, you know, those, those adoptees would gradually be absorbed into Haudenosaunee uh, culture, right? Um, and at least in the short term, that is not what we see at all. Uh, instead, what we see is these Susquehannock migrants um, very, very quickly, within like just a year, uh, reconstituting communities um, in, in Iroquois, uh, ascending to positions of leadership, and um, starting to direct new direct new new forms, or or I guess like new um, policies, if we want to think of it that way, in terms of how Iroquoian, um, how the Haudenosaunee nations are directing their external relations. Uh, part of my argument is that the reason we should understand um, the reason or the way that we should see this process. Is, is not that these adoptees in 1677 are, are coming into a, some you know, strange country that is totally foreign to them. Uh, because in a lot of ways, they're, they're joining hundreds or possibly even thousands of Sasquehannocks who had been adopted into Haudenosaunee families over the course of several past decades, right? Um, when I said earlier that from 1650 to 1675, there was a 90% population loss, in Gandestoga, that doesn't mean that there was a ninety percent death rate. That what that means is that there were a, there were a lot of people who were um, taken in mourning wars uh, with Haudenosaunee um, opponents, and absolutely some of them would have been killed, but a lot of them would have become adopted into Haudenosaunee families, would have become part of the warp and weft of Haudenosaunee society, and. Um, one of the continuing arguments I try to make in this book is that Susquehannock's don't, we shouldn't see them as ever having any kind of singular identity that is possible to override, right? One of the things about a culture that values diversity um, that, it, that is sort of thrives on making connections to outsiders and bringing them you know, court, kind of into the, the kinship polity is that identities, political identities wind up becoming um, layered. Uh, Susquehannocks can be part of multiple political communities. They can be part of multiple nations uh, in ways that are, that we can't collapse into just one or just the other. And that is true of the Susquehannocks that go to Iroquois as well. It's not that they're really Susquehannock and, you know, resisting um, assimilation or that they're really Haudenosaunee and, you know, have vestiges of some previous identity. we should see it as having both, right? Of having layers of identity that coexist and are not necessarily um, incompatible in any serious way. And and that is exactly the source of of strength, right? Because it is that layered multiplicity that allows Susquehannocks to be easily and quickly incorporated into the political and social structures of Haudenosaunee societies and engage in the kind of processes that we see. Moving from town to town uh, uh, um, according to uh, uh, with, you know, freedom of movement, um, being able to constitute entire Susquehanna communities without any uh, uh, um, Haudenosaunee members that are sort of like overseeing them or something like that, uh, even taking up positions of leadership, speaking in council with their own voice instead of having senior members of the Haudenosaunee Nation speak on their behalf. Uh, And then, you know, ultimately leading um, war parties that are kind of just continuing the previous conflicts that had been ongoing since 1675. Only now marshaling the resources of Haudenosaunee friends, family members, allies against those previous enemies, groups like, um, especially uh, indigenous nation, tributary nations in Maryland and Virginia, that becomes the source of Haudenosaunee military activity, or sorry, the target of Haudenosaunee military activity in a way that it had not been before. And I think that's directly related to Susquehannock influence.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, that's really fascinating. So so uh, how in your final chapter um, do Susquehannocks continue to exercise disproportionate power, you know, further disrupting settler societies that were importantly, at this point, also routinizing a, a much more strident, sort of rigid form of racism.
1: Exactly. Um, so the, the the final chapter really just looks at the way that this becomes a cycle. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, part, part part on a strictly basic empirical level, one of the things I want this chapter to do is draw attention to the the continuousness of of violence um, that is occurring during a time period that most historians consider to be sort of uh, like that, the violence has been is over, right? Bacon's Rebellion is done. Um, the uprising in Maryland is over. Uh, uh, after the 1677 um, Treaty at Albany, that you know those relations have have uh, um, calmed down, right? Like there's a general sense that even if there are some ongoing outstanding conflicts, uh, that all of these colonies have moved on to other other kind of issues. Uh, they have other other preoccupations. And um, part of what I try to show actually is that if you, if you think of, of warfare as being part of a seasonal activity, right? Um, which is exactly what uh, historians of, of native um, uh, uh, martial cultures have have shown, really. Uh, it, it tends to be a thing that begins in spring and, you know, um, hits its high point in summer and uh, tapers off when the weather turns cold in the fall. If we look at this as a kind of a punctuated activity that follows a seasonal pattern, then native raids against targets in the Chesapeake is continuous during those seasonal kind of points uh, for about five years after the supposed end of conflict in 1677. And the remarkable thing about it is that settlers um, report that it's led by Susquehannock um, leaders war captains and sachems who have gained these positions of authority and influence within the Haudenosaunee um, political structures, and are able to marshal all of these military resources to pursue their agendas. And and the consistency that they attribute um, Susquehannock agency to this violence is is really remarkable. And it usually comes from the people who are in the position to be best informed about it. People who have indigenous informants, right? Especially Algonquins in all these places, who are the direct targets of these raids. Uh, they know exactly who is 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 leading this these initiatives. And it's not it's not um, it's not leaders who have suddenly discovered uh, a, a dedicated enmity to Chesapeake Algonquins. It's the same Susquehannocks who had been the target of. Um, violence from these Algonquin groups during that period in 1676 and 1677. So in that, so I I think like understanding the continuity and understanding the constancy of of these attacks is is really important um, for a couple of reasons. Number one is that it shows uh, part of the dynamics that lead to really serious ramifications for all of these Chesapeake Algonquin groups. Because they're they're facing an overwhelming military force um, that they just don't really have this, the, the, the manpower or resources to combat, um, especially when they're facing settlers who are supposed to be their allies, but are often taking positions of suspicion, right? Um, imagining that maybe they're maybe they're making this up, maybe they're actually conspiring with these Susquehannock enemies, still engaging in the kinds of um, conspiratorial thinking that had animated preemptive violence in the past. It, that's really straining relationships and preventing settlers from giving um, tributary nations the support that they need. And, and so uh, you know several of those nations um, are, are almost completely destroyed. Uh, in Virginia, a number of them amalgamate into smaller um, or, or uh, uh, more consolidated groups for protection. It, it really transforms the, the shape of um, these indigenous nations in the Chesapeake and in the, the Piedmont. Um, The other the other, I think, really crucial uh, um, effect of all this is that, uh, as you as you uh, mentioned, it, I think, it is an important way that we need to understand um, the context for some of the racial formations that historiographies have have explored for a long time, Uh, because, you know, the 1680s in particular is is clearly a time period when um, the nature of slavery is, is shifting toward one that is much more restrictive and it's much more racialized. Um, some of the reasons for this, as I or at least I try to show, um, that some of the reasons for this are directly tied to this continual flow of indigenous violence, which subverts the normal understanding we have of, of plantations um, and plantation societies being a kind of a space of, of, of Settler mastery over people of African descent, right? Where you have the kind of this exercise of power that allows the um, imposition of racial identities. Um, And in fact, I think we need to reverse that that image a little bit. We need to see these plantation societies as profoundly precarious, not because of their relationships with enslaved people necessarily, but because they are constantly on guard, um, constantly afraid of indigenous assault. And that vulnerability is part of the source of some of the hardening racial categories that we see. That's part of the reason why we we see um, an attempt to create divisions between Black and uh, increasingly what we would consider white laborers right, to forestall any kind of solidarities between them, and also, at the same time, to forestall solidarities between both of those groups and foreign indigenous nations, that they might be tempted to sort of escape and join. Um, We also see, at the same time, uh, a significant expansion in the scale of the indigenous slave trade in the South. which is funneling a lot more native people into these plantation uh, uh, contexts where they're working um, alongside enslaved uh, people of African descent. And that's why you also at the same time are seeing um, new kinds of categories that are conflating, um, essentially conflating Indians and Africans as part of one sort of like lumpen proletariat racialized group. It's like people of color uh, become more and more um, homogenized. And and that makes it possible to see the kind of um, identification of skin color and subordinate laboring status of slavery uh, that ultimately kind of reaches its its um, apotheosis in the 18th and 19th centuries. Like this is a crucial moment where we see that develop.
0: Well, Matthew Crewe, this was Really, really fascinating, and, and and it was great to to finally get to talk to you. Um, thanks so much for for doing this today. And uh, is is there anything before we go in the in the future future projects uh, that you'd like to tell listeners about?
1: Sure. Um, so uh, the the main project I'm I'm looking at now has to do with uh, an examination of indigenous sovereignty before the era of the nation state. And um, this is really coming out of, of that that work on uh, the Treaty of Middle Plantation that I did uh, for this book, which I think just scratches the surface. I think there's a lot more to be said about the Pamunkeys, about Virginia indigenous nations, and about that treaty. But I also think that, um, that f- someone like Coco Koweski, right, that, um, that female leader who accomplished this amazing thing under unbelievable uh, odds, um I don't think that she is actually alone in any way. I think there's a lot of Native leaders who are similarly in positions where they're in, in you know, small nations who don't have a lot of military power, they don't have a lot of leverage or clout. They are one way or another formally incorporated into the political structure of the British Empire, but are nonetheless pursuing um, articulating and enacting forms of sovereignty that are um, consistent, with forms of indigenous relationality as they've always been understood, uh, as well as um, engaging in creative new ways with the British empire under, under the constraints that they can't really fully avoid. Um, and I think that that's a story that can be, um, that can be told everywhere from you know, the Caribbean to uh, Northern New England. Um, so that's my that's my main project. And then uh, I'm I'm working on a, a side project that has to do with uh, representations of indigeneity in 17th century science fiction.
0: Oh, wow. Well, that sounds interesting, too. Um, so I like to ask at the end, you know, is, is there a book or two, uh, a new book in Native American studies that um, that you have your eye on or, or that you'd like to recommend to uh, to listeners?
1: Absolutely. Um, I have. I uh, actually have a, a, a few if I, if I, if you want to right? Of course, of um, course. So this has been a great year for uh, early American history, specifically, and, and people doing indigenous studies in the idiom of, of early American history. So so two that I'll absolutely recommend. Um, one is uh, the, the Great Power of Small Nations by Elizabeth Ellis, um, which is about the, the petite nations in um, colonial Louisiana. And uh, in in a <laughs> um, in a series of, of of arguments that I find extremely compelling, if only because um, I feel like you know in some ways they are they are parallel to the phenomenon that I've seen in a very different context, um, and that that uh, uh, Liz Ellis shows just so beautifully and with and with so much um, specificity and, and and texture and um, deep engagement with. Uh, Native American and Indigenous Studies methods. Um, she, she shows how those small nations were able to to marshal um, much more power uh, than we might expect. The other one, the other one in early American uh, history is uh, called Becoming Catawba by Brooke Bauer, um, and uh, that is is just it's a long durée history of Catawba history. Um, it it really masterfully blends ethno methods and indigenous studies methods. It uses storytelling um, in ways that are, I think really methodologically groundbreaking for, for early American history in particular and uh, something that I hope the future historians um, will continue to uh, continue to, to explore.
0: All right, well, thanks so much. Um, it's been great having you and uh, hope you'll be back on with the, uh, the next project.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it.